Wow, that seemed to work. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I know many of you are going on the dine around tonight, and you might want to know who your dinner guests are going to be. So the first thing we're going to do is introduce uh, Caitlin Herrera and Kelly Gask to read the dine around. So is everybody paying attention? We're being real. We got our indoor voices on. We're being real quiet. We are there. We're ready. All right, now I'm going to introduce Caitlin and Kelly to read the dine around list. Hello, everybody. I, first thing I do want to say is if you have not signed up for a dine-around, but you would like to do so or signed up to do so, you do need to see either me or Kelly within the next, like, what, half hour, 45 minutes <laughs> before the tour starts. Um, yes, before lunch is over. And I, again, Dan mentioned this this morning, but I do want to say again, if you are doing the dine around to please meet in the lobby at 6.30, I will be down there. I have Braille and large print menus for every restaurant. And so I will be giving them to you and helping you to orchestrate your Ubers or whatever transportation you need to get there. So I will pass it off to you. Okay, so first up we have Daya Indian Cuisine. That has Ellen Telker, Hazel Fields, and Liz Botner. So not all of these are full if you guys want to go. Uh, the next one is Hawaii Ethiopian Restaurant. That's with Chris Hunsinger, Lee Nasahi, and Joe Nasahi. Thank you. Uh, Indichen has Meryl Schechter, Beverly Thompson, Ricky Scott, Tasha Welsh, Mo Carpenter, Regina Brink, and Doug Hall. Landini Brothers has Patty Cox, Deborah Persons, Kenna Semyon, Colleen Kitagawa, Jennifer Dubbin, Sandy Owens, Chris Bell, and Janine Lee. Mai Tai has Andy Arvidson, Colette Arvidson, Deb Cook-Lewis, Kay Malmquist, Terry Nordy, Elizabeth Davidson. Old House Cosmopolitan European Restaurant has Peter Heidi, Susan Heidi, and Cecily Nipper. Southside 815 has Sharon Dutmer, Casey Dutmer, Edward Andrews, Janae Miller, Donna Browning, Kevin Ratliff, Marcus Manning, and Daniel Moraseski. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> um, Urbano 116 has Sally Benjamin, Sheila Young, Donna Brown, Jennifer Harnish, Dan Spoon, Leslie Spoon, Sam Klassen, and Anthony Corona. And that is it. Yes. So again, please, if you did not hear your name on that list and you do want to do the dining round, you do need to see Kelly or I. We are at the, if you hear my voice, I am right here. If you walk to my left, we're at a table. Okay. Great. Yes. To the left of that noise. All right. Whatever. Okay. You're going to find us. We're going to find you. Okay. Yeah, um, so please do get in touch with us and we'll put you down for a restaurant. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin, and thank you, Kelly, and thank you, International Relations Committee, for helping organize our dine around. Thank everybody so much. Now I'm honored to introduce to you our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Clark Rockfall, and he will introduce our guests and be our Masters of Ceremonies for our lunchtime session. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. How was the morning here for folks? 
How many folks here were able to sign up and receive a National Parks Access Pass? And a a big thank you to Ranger Kelly for assisting everyone with that. and she, yes, did she, we just heard that she will be here for a little bit following lunch as well. So there's still, there's still time, folks. So at this moment, I'd like to introduce our, uh, our first speaker, uh, and that is Jocelyn Bucaro from the Mobile Voting Project. And again, please give a big ACB welcome and thank you to the Mobile Voting Project for their sponsorship of the ACB DC Leadership Conference. And I hope hope that many of you were able to provide feedback and get a hands-on experience with the remote accessible voting platform that they are developing. I know I I casted my votes, privately and independently. Although it wasn't so private because Jocelyn was looking over my shoulder the whole time. You've got to watch those election workers, folks. You've got to keep them honest. All right. Well, Jocelyn, do you have a yep. microphone? I do. I don't know if it's on. Yes. Awesome. Can you, can you so, hear me? Jocelyn, okay. take it away. Thank you, Clark. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Well, it, hold it. Oh, we can trade. We'll trade. Thank you. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this event. We are very, very excited to be here, and we really appreciate those of you who were able to come by and give us some feedback. So um, a little bit about our project. So I am the director of mobile voting with Tusk Philanthropies. We are a nonprofit organization working to um, advocate for expanded voting options to make elections and voting more accessible, more resilient, and more convenient for voters who face particular barriers to voting by traditional mail or in-person. We have been around for the last, actually now, five years. Um, And in our first few years, we focused on supporting um, pilot elections for military and overseas voters and voters with disabilities to um, be able to pilot the use of mobile voting in public elections. And we've funded over 20 elections across seven states um, in that time period, um, starting in West Virginia. I know Donna is here from West Virginia. <laughs> um, I, I myself am a former election administrator. I ran elections in the city and county of Denver, and, and we were the second jurisdiction to pilot Yes, so, um, and, and those pilot elections were really successful. Um, in fact, the pilot that we ran in Denver, which was limited to just military voters and overseas voters in um, 2019 because of the technology at the time was not accessible. Um, but, but 100% of the voters who were surveyed in that election told us that they wanted to use that voting option for every election in the future. So we know if we can provide the technology solution to make voting easier and more accessible, that voters will want to use it. Um, That's one of the lessons we learned in those pilots. And then the other lesson we learned is that the technology that we were piloting, while more secure than other options like email return and fax return, 
we're still being identified by security experts as not meeting the requirements that they think are necessary before we can see more use of accessible remote voting for more voters. So that led us as a, as a nonprofit to want to investigate what other technology developers were working on and whether or not we could support the development of a secure option to make this uh, accessible remote voting possible for more people and also address the concerns that the security community is right to have about the security of a ballot returned over the internet. So we started a project two years ago to fund research and development into new technology for accessible remote voting. Um, and that's the technology that you all were able to, to do some testing on today. So what makes this technology different? Well, unfortunately, the, the voting app as it, as it is developed as of today doesn't have all of the, the features that I'm going to mention right now, but I just do want to briefly tell you how this technology is meant to work, and, and we expect it to be ready this spring, um, so we're really excited to get some additional feedback over the next few months, and anyone who's interested um, in participating, the beauty of mobile voting is that you can do it from anywhere, and we'll be able to get your feedback even if you're at home. Um, and we just invite you to participate in a mock election, maybe in a month or two. But, but the one thing that's going to be different about this technology is that it's going to enable you as a voter to independently verify that your ballot is being recorded and encrypted correctly before you submit it so that you know that there's nothing changing how your ballot is being recorded without your knowledge. Um, a very important security feature since you're voting on a, on a device that, you know, we all know devices are vulnerable. Um, so just to make sure your device is safe and your ballot is safe. So that's important feature number one. And then secondly, once you've submitted your ballot, that you'll be able to independently verify that it's received correctly in the election office. And then once your ballot is submitted and received, you can track it through signature verification um, to make sure your ballot's been accepted for counting. And then you'll also know when your ballot has been decrypted and printed onto a machine-readable ballot and tabulated with all the other absentee ballots, just like traditional absentee voting. So it won't include any tabulation of ballots online. It's all going to be... Um, handled the same way as a paper absentee ballot is today, um, except that you will never have to handle that piece of paper. The election office will be printing that for you. So the other piece of what uh, the other piece of our work, in addition to this important project, and what we really hope to do with this project is answer some of the security concerns and move us towards. Um, wider adoption of, of remote accessible absentee voting. And we th the next step in that process is going to be advocacy and really working at the state and local level to support efforts to change state laws and support expanded access to um, accessible electronic ballot return in states that don't currently have it. Anybody want to venture, I guess, and maybe because you're all here at the leadership conference, you might know the answer to this question, but how many states currently permit 
voters with disabilities to return, re receive and return a ballot electronically in the United States. It's actually more, so this is good news. <laughs> you guys were really firm on that seven number. <laughs> so, so over the last few years, there have been a number of states that have expanded access at the policy level and two states that have expanded access at the courts. Um, North Carolina and Indiana recently, yes. And then there's, there's actually a total of 14 states that have at least passed laws or had federal courts order it um, for voters with disabilities. 14 out of 50, plus the District of Columbia. So and we, could, I mean, we could count above, so we could say 51. So 14 of 51. How many states allow military and overseas voters to return a ballot electronically? 32 plus the District of Columbia, so 33 out of 51. So, so we've got a deficit for voters with disabilities by quite a few states. We have a lot of work to do. And we, as, as Tusk Philanthropies, the other half of our work is, is around supporting advocacy efforts and, and supporting in-state coalitions of organizations like yours to... Um, to you know, advocate to policymakers, to the Secretary of State, to your local election officials, to try to address their concerns about security, to address you know, the critics of this as an option, that if you've ever run an advocacy campaign in your state, you have no, I'm sure you've encountered some folks who've come out against your bill in a surprising way, right? No, that doesn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But we're, we're, we're ready to be a resource to help. We can connect to security experts who can testify in favor because they've either supported pilot elections or supported cybersecurity testing on available technology. We also um, have built a lot of coalitions with other organizations from the military and overseas voter community, which can serve as, as additional advocates for, on your behalf. Um, so if we can be helpful in any way, we are ready to, to be a partner to you in those efforts. Um, we can also, you know, hopefully in the next few years, we'll be able to start supporting with lobbying help and additional resources that we might be able to bring um, and then hopefully this technology project that we're funding will also go a long way towards um, building the security infrastructure to address those concerns. So that, that's the work that we're supporting. We're really excited to be a partner to the American Council of the Blind. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have conversations with Clark on a regular basis about the efforts of all of you from across the country and anything we can do to support that. So please call on me as a resource if I can be helpful. And please let us know if you can become a test user of this technology for us in the next couple months, because we would love to continue to get your feedback as this technology continues to be developed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you, Jocelyn, and thank you to the Mobile Voting Project for being a, a partner and collaborator with the American Council of the Blind. Uh, so we know Donna Brown's in the room. Uh, let's hear it. Where is West Virginia in the room? Right 
All right, so we've got Donna from West Virginia, and they've successfully advocated for remote accessible voting and electronic ballot return. What about North Carolina? Where's North Carolina? Well, North Carolina, they, they won in the courts to gain access to electronic ballot return. What about Indiana? There you go. In- there you go. Indiana has advocated for electronic ballot return as well. But we've got some other states that are still working on this, as we heard from our session on Tuesday, with legislation and with litigation. So where is Illinois in the room? Yeah. And, and where is Washington State? Yeah. And what about California? So the, and uh, do we have anyone from New York? I don't think we have New York in person, but these are all states where advocacy work is continuing. And you just heard Jocelyn say that Mobile Voting Project is an ally in these advocacy efforts. Uh, Not only for our elections here in the United States, but Jocelyn, we had a uh, a little mock election here in the exhibit hall. How did that go? The, we got some really helpful feedback. Um, most of you who were able to come in were, were really successful at voting independently. Um, sometimes I might have been behind you, so I may have seen how you voted. But hopefully if you're doing that at home, that would not happen. <laughs> um, but, but we do have results from the election. So we did ask a question. Um, we did ask all of you to select which of the legislative priorities for the American Council of the Blind are, your, are you most passionate about this year. And we, um, we had two winners there. It was actually tied. Um, so the communications legislation. Communications, what was it? Okay. Uh, so the, the CVTA, the Communications Video and Technology Accessibility Act, and then what was the second? And then the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. So those were your top two winners. Um, for, those, I, for those of you who did vote in the presidential contest, I did notice a trend... I do believe John Kennedy won the most votes, but I believe in second place was your president, Dan Spoon. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again for having us. If you do have, if you're not going on tours and you do want to check out the voting app and test it out before you leave uh, the conference, we'll be around for, for a bit after lunch. Um, Happy to invite you to come, come by. Um, Again, it's through the Potomac room behind the Potomac Room where the, the, one of the breakout sessions was. And uh, otherwise, thank you all so much for having us. Enjoy the rest of your conference. Thank you, Jocelyn. Uh, we, we do have time for a couple questions. If there are questions in the room for Jocelyn, uh, he says a little apprehensively because I don't know if we have a mic runner in in the room. Uh, Was that a yes? Yes, we do have a mic runner. So if you have a question for Jocelyn, please raise your hand. 
We've got three hands. We will take those three questions. Hi, this is Paul Edwards, and, and thank you very much for your presentation. My, my question is, is it your intent to sell your product to state boards of elections and local counties? Um, and, and if so, can you talk about um, the degree to which the, the price point at which you're making your, your product available is competitive with other, with other current uh, entities in, in the, the arena? Thank you for that question. That's a great question. So we are a nonprofit organization. We're grant funding this solution to grantees. Um, and then ultimately, the technology itself is going to be owned by a new nonprofit called the Free Democracy Foundation. And the Free Democracy Foundation, like its name suggests, is seeking to offer the technology to election jurisdictions at no cost or very little cost if they do require some, some, some cost to use. So um, our aim is to not make budgetary constraints um, be a reason that election jurisdictions are not able to offer this important accessible solution to voters who need it. Next question. Um, whoops. Okay. I think I got it. Um, this is Chris Hunsinger. I'm in Pennsylvania. We do have, um, don't have electronic ballot return, but we do have a company that is doing um, at least ballot delivery. Now, will the state actually be able to switch over to this better process? And of course, we are a non-Yukava electronics state at this point. Yeah, I know. Poor Pennsylvania. Um, we got work to do there. Um, so yes, this is this is actually um, very easy for election administrators to turn on as a, an added feature. Um, it requires very little additional funding to use electronic ballot return in any state that has electronic ballot delivery, which every state is mandated under federal law to offer accessible uh, uh, online ballot delivery to UOCAVA voters. Um, under federal law, that's already required. So adding for voters with disabilities is not an additional cost burden on jurisdictions. And then adding electronic ballot return is actually very easy for election administra administrators to add. So th th that should not be an issue that jurisdictions can use to advocate against this reform. And if you encounter that, please, that's where I, as a former election administrator myself, am more than happy to help address those questions. Hi, good afternoon. Anthony Corona from Florida. And um, Florida's been advocating for a long time for um, accessible solutions. Um, I have two questions. My first question is, are you working with the other companies that are in this space right now? Um, are you collecting feedback? And my second question does involve the security. I know some of the solutions are using Amazon Enterprise and have had it tested. What are like the three top key talkbacks for the security issues that are being raised? And, and folks can imagine they're raised a lot in Florida. Thank you. Yeah, so, so first of all, Florida is such, 
it, this is needed so desperately in Florida. You guys have had hurricanes hit your state for the last two midterm elections. I mean, this is an option that would make your election system more resilient to natural disaster, too. And those of you in California, I'd love, love to talk to you, too. Um, but um, you also have the third largest population of UOCAVA voters. And um, so you have, you, have a, you have a really good case to make to your state legislature and your secretary of state in Florida. Um, as far as um, as far as working with the other vendors, yeah, we I mean we've supported their um, pilots in jurisdictions with grant funding, and, and I work very closely with all of the other vendors in the space, particularly Enhanced Voting and Democracy Live. Um, so, which I know a lot of you use one or the other. Um, so we have very, very good working relationships with all of them, and they can also be great partners in advocacy efforts in your state. As far as the security questions, I mean, the biggest, the biggest question, the big, there's, there's three sort of chief arguments that people make against electronic ballot return. The first is that there's no way to know that your ballot is marked and recorded the way you intended um, under current voting options with electronic return. There's, there's no way to, to ensure that your ballot isn't somehow hacked by a malicious actor and your votes changed. So that's issue number one. Issue number two, there's no way to know that your ballot's gonna be submitted correctly and there could be a transmission problem, there could be um, you know, there, there could be a host of issues that might interfere with your ballot being returned successfully over the internet. So that's issue number two. And then issue number three has to do with voter privacy and voter coercion and the risk that because they, you know, there's, there's this sort of nefarious idea that voting um, electronically is going to introduce a greater risk of those things happening, which by the way are already risks in paper absentee voting. So, so I sort of ignore that argument and say if, if, if it's not viewed as an unacceptable risk for other forms of absentee voting, then it should not be viewed as an unacceptable risk for this form of voting, which makes a voting independently and privately possible for voters who need it. So that's my response to that argument. On the, oh, am I, am I out of time? Oh, okay. Just on the other two, the technology that we, we are supporting the development of is designed to mitigate the risk that those kinds of attacks can happen without you as a voter being able to detect it. So you will have the ability to independently of the system verify that everything's working the way it's supposed to. And that is a, the critical feature that the security community has said needs to be in place before this can be used by more voters. So we're really hopeful that this will help. And we've, we've enlisted some of the folks who've been critics in the past to, to look at this technology and publish reports and assessments of it. And we're hoping that that is going to help address some of those concerns and make this possible and overcome those obstacles when we're trying to pass legislation. Thank you. So there's one more hand. This will be our last question for Jocelyn. Yes, this is Meryl. Um, I believe we should have a system just like Vote Now, which is our for that we do for ACB national elections, where we have like a, a registration, a voter code. 
So nobody knows what our voter code is. So this gives us, you know, security. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's 100% right. I mean, there's definitely ways we can um, make the, the identifying who you are and that you're an eligible voter through, through digital voting and accessible voting easier and better and even potentially do away with the requirement that you have to sign an affidavit when you return that ballot because we should be able to verify you through other ways. Thank you. Awesome. And again, thank you, Jocelyn, and thank you for the support of the Mobile Voting Project. We will definitely take you up on your offer um, to share a remote ballot here in the coming months, and we hope that you all are able to join us at our conference and convention in Schaumburg, Illinois this summer as well. Near her hometown, folks, so you, you heard it. She's locked in. All right. Uh, at this time, I'd like to introduce our second speakers for this lunch. And I know some of the folks here had an opportunity to visit and experience the tactile images from the James Webb Space Telescope. So I'd like to pass the microphone over to Dr. Kelly Lepo and Tim Rue. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Uh, my name is Tim Rue. I'm here with Dr. Kelly Lepo. Hi, everyone. Uh, as you know, I hope, the James Webb Space Telescope launched just over a year ago. Uh, we've been get, getting back data, and uh, it's been coming out to the public since last July. We've been amazed by the science that has been coming back. Um, we're going to take some time now. Kelly is going to give you an overview of some of the science highlights that have come in this past year. I am going to be taking on the role of alt text narrator, reading some of the alt text and extended descriptions of the public images that we've produced to help people hear how amazing our universe is. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if you do want to access these yourself, they're on the website, uh, web with two Bs, telescope.org, uh, right there with the images. If you want to access the extended descriptions, uh, we are putting them right on the website so you don't need to download anything. This is a, a, a new thing we're working out. We've got them on a couple pages. Kelly and I have been getting emails while we're sitting here about more pages <laughs> of them getting that they're there on. But um, basically just look for an image and it'll say view description, title of the image, uh, and you should be able to access that. Um, we'll be rolling those out slowly over the next few months, getting more and more of those up for you. Um, however... With that, I would like to pass it to uh, Kelly. Uh, so hi, everyone. I'm really excited that I get to talk a little science over your lunch. N normally, this would be the slot they'd put like an astronaut in. I'm not quite as cool as an astronaut. Um, but we're going to talk a, a little bit about the science that Webb has been up to for the past year or so. So we're going to start off with the first image released um, by the James Webb Space Telescope Webb's first deep field. Thousands of small galaxies appear across this view. Their colors vary. Some are shades of orange, while others are white. Most appear as fuzzy ovals, but a few have distinct spiral arms. In front of the galaxies are several foreground stars. Most appear blue, and the bright stars have diffraction spikes, forming an eight-pointed star shape. There are also many thin, long orange arcs that curve around the center of the image. Okay, 
So what we are describing here is a view of many different parts of the universe. In the foreground, we have stars in our own Milky Way galaxy, and the stars have spikes on them. And that is not a property of the stars themselves, but it's created by the optics of the telescope. Behind that, there is a galaxy cluster. This galaxy cluster is made out of many different galaxies, and galaxies, as I was talking about earlier in our breakout session, are made of stars and gas and dust and dark matter. This galaxy cluster is so massive that it is warping the fabric of space-time. It's so massive, it's warping the fabric of space-time. And we can see this because of those arcs that Tim was describing. Those arcs are caused by background galaxies whose light shines through the galaxy cluster and gets distorted and bent and magnified. And this allows us to see back in time to see very ancient galaxies that we couldn't see before because we have nature's own magnifying glass gravity helping us out. And this is all a consequence of general relativity. And we are seeing this in this image, which is really cool. Okay, I could talk forever, but we'll move on. Um, the next image is the one that we showed in uh, the tactile panels, uh, Stefan's Quintet. All right, and this is the composite view, which is just slightly different from the mid-infrared view, which we had the tactile of. Correct. An image of a group of five galaxies that appear close to each other in the sky. Two in the middle, one toward the top, one to the upper left, and one toward the bottom. Four of the five appear to be touching. One is somewhat separated. In the image, the galaxies are large relative to the hundreds of much smaller, more distant, galaxies in the background. All five galaxies have bright white cores. Each has a slightly different size, shape, structure, and coloring. Scattered across the image, in front of the galaxies, are a number of foreground stars with diffraction spikes bright white points, each with eight bright lines radiating out from the center. And thank you for that, Tim. Those eight pointed diffraction spikes are a signature of the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, it has to do with the shape of the mirror and the shape of the struts holding up the mirrors that makes this shape. So whenever you hear an image described with an eight pointed star, you can tell that's a web image, which is pretty cool. So this... Um, image that we just described is a group of galaxies that are interacting with each other, or at least four of the five are interacting with each other. The galaxy on the left appears about the same size, but that's just because it's close to us. The other galaxies are bigger and farther away, so they appear to be about the same size. And these galaxies on the right, which are interacting with each other, um, they have these big swooping tails, which is caused by gravity, pulling these galaxies and stretching out their features. And between the two of them, there is a sh area of shocked gas, which we felt earlier, some of you. And then there's these two galaxies near the bottom, and one of them is called the high-speed intruder because it is crashing the party. It's crashing into this group of galaxies and making a whole big mess. It's pretty neat. 
But there's actually a surprise if we're not just looking in this composite image and we look at just the mid-infrared light. So that one's next. An image of a group of four galaxies that appear close to each other in the sky. Two in the middle, one toward the top, one to the upper left. In addition, there is a large bright patch toward the right. The galaxy at the top has a bright reddish core and is surrounded by swirls of blue and purple filaments that travel inward toward its bright core, also highlighted by eight diffraction spikes. The galaxy on the left is a mass of purple gas surrounding a dim red core. The mass is made from small clumps, each slightly illuminated. The two galaxies in the middle have two bright blue cores surrounded by purple wisps. The bright patch to the right is made from clouds of blue and purple strung together in filament-like bands. Surrounding the galaxies is a background peppered with red, blue, and purple dots, which are distant stars and galaxies. Yeah, so the surprise that I was talking about in this really cool mid-infrared image of the galaxies is the uppermost galaxy on the right. We see this bright point-like source, and this is a supermassive black hole that is something like 25 million times the mass of the sun. And we only uh, detect this when we look at the longest, reddest wavelengths of light, because otherwise space dust is shrouding our view. So that is one really key uh, science feature that Webb has, the ability to see through the dust that blocks our view to lots of things in the universe. And also, we get to study the dust itself. Um, and so we're going to move from one dusty thing to another dusty thing, uh, the star-forming region known as the Cosmic Cliffs in the Carina Nebula. Editorial comment, uh, Kelly is wearing a shirt with the cosmic cliffs plastered across. It's quite beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. The image is divided horizontally by an undulating line between a cloudscape forming a nebula along the bottom portion and a comparatively clear upper portion. Speckled across both portions is a star field showing innumerable stars of many sizes. The smallest of these are small, distant, and faint points of light. The largest of these appear larger, closer, brighter, and more fully resolved with eight-point diffraction spikes. The upper portion of the image is bluish and has wispy, translucent, cloud-like streaks rising from the nebula below. The orangish, cloudy formation in the bottom half varies in density and ranges from translucent to opaque. The stars vary in color the majority of which have a blue or orange hue. The cloud-like structure of the nebula contains ridges, peaks, and valleys, an appearance very similar to a mountain range. Three long diffraction spikes from the top right edge of the image suggest the presence of a large star just out of view. <laughs> um, so thank you, Tim. So what we are seeing here is a star forming region. This is a region where baby stars are forming inside of our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, you can imagine that this is the edge of a bubble and inside the bubble are these hot, massive, young stars. We can just see the edge of their diffraction spikes in the image. Um, and what they are doing is they're actually destroying the nebula that they were born in. 
So the bottom half of this image, we are seeing a cold, dark, dense nebula. This is the type of location where stars are being formed. And with Webb's infrared eyes, we can see a little bit into this nebula to see the forming stars, to see the jets and shocks that these stars are making. And we'll, we're helping to understand how stars like our sun were born in these clouds of gas and dust. Uh, yes, why don't we skip the southern ring? Um, okay, and so next, we're going to turn to our own solar system, and we're going to hear what planets inside of our solar system look like with infrared eyes. So first up is Jupiter. Jupiter dominates the black background of space. The planet is striated with swirling horizontal stripes of neon turquoise, periwinkle, light pink, and cream. The stripes interact and mix at their edges like cream in coffee. Along both of the poles, the planet glows in turquoise. Bright orange auroras glow just above the planet's surface at both poles. So yes, Webb is giving us new insight into planets inside of our own solar system. And part of the problem, which makes these observations tricky, is that these planets are actually really super bright in infrared, and so we're pushing the telescope as much as we can to see very bright objects. So in this image of Jupiter, we're seeing hazes and auroras, and we're getting insight into the atmosphere of this planet in our solar system. Okay, and next up, perhaps my favorite web image, that of Neptune and its moons. Neptune, near cam, labeled. Image has a mostly dark background with one extremely bright point of light that dominates the upper left quadrant of the image and a glowing sphere towards the bottom middle of the image. The extremely bright point of light at the upper left of the image has eight spikes pointing out from a center bright point like a compass. This is labeled Triton. The glowing sphere is mostly white, almost neon, with a few extremely bright patches representing methane ice clouds. The glowing sphere is accompanied by several narrow, faint rings and six tiny white dots, which are Neptune's other moons. They are labeled as Galatea, Naiad, Thalassa, Despina, Proteus, and Larissa. Splattered throughout the mostly black background are about ten small, dim, blurry circles which represent distant galaxies. So yes, I love this image partially because we can see those background galaxies. This is a feature that we're seeing in most web images. We're trying to take pictures of a planet and we get bonus pictures of galaxies. But also, this is the best picture that we have of Neptune's rings since the Voyager missions in the 70s flew by. And also we're seeing Triton and it's a bright point and it looks a lot like a star and that's because Triton is ridiculously shiny in the infrared. It reflects something like 90% of the light that hits it. So shine on you beautiful diamond. Uh, okay, and so <laughs> um, we'll talk about our last image and this is actually more a piece of data than an image to give you uh, a feel of what it's like to describe something that comes back from the telescope that's a spectrum. 
And the majority of what the telescope does measure are not images. Uh, we get spectra, graphs, um, which are really important for the science. So this is a portion of the extended description for this, which goes into a little bit more detail. The graph labeled near-spec prism consists of 209 data points, each with a gray error bar. The points range in wavelength from 0.5 to 5.5 microns in an amount of light blocked from 2.08% to 2.30%. The data points are not connected. They follow a jagged trend from left to right with a number of broad peaks and valleys. A solid blue line with several prominent peaks and valleys represents the best fit model. The blue best fit model line generally follows the trend of the data. It intersects some data points but does not match the data perfectly. Ten wavelength bands are highlighted with colored, semi-transparent vertical bars, each labeled with an element or compound. These correspond to spectral features. Some of the features overlap. A sodium feature, highlighted in blue, spans from 0.52 to 0.70 microns. Four water features, highlighted in light blue, span from 0.9 to 1.5 microns, 1.72 to 2.16 microns, 2.40 to 3.25 microns, <laughs> 5.00 to 5.35 microns. It does continue like this. I will mention the highlights rather than use your time mentioning each of the exact spots. There are two carbon monoxide features highlighted in red, two carbon dioxide features highlighted in yellow, a sulfur dioxide feature highlighted in green. Some of the features, including water, carbon dioxide, and sodium, are characterized by prominent peaks or sets of peaks apparent in the data and model, and others are subtler. Okay, so that's, that's a lot, right? <laughs> okay, um, so if you were really wanting to dig into the data, that's available for you. But I'd just like to tell you why, as an astronomer, this is exciting for me. So this is a planet that is 700 light years away. So the light from the star that this planet is orbiting takes 700 years to get to us. The planet is passing in front of its star and we're watching the starlight filter through the planet's atmosphere and some molecules inside of that atmosphere are absorbing very particular bits of light and that allows us to figure out what the atmosphere of this planet 700 light years away is made out of. So I know the physics, I studied the physics in school, but the fact that this actually works just blows my mind every time. I think that's why it's exciting to be an astronomer. Like, oh, that, that stuff I learned in a book, I can use that to figure out what a planet is made out of. And this planet is also very bizarre. Um, it's about the size of Jupiter, but it's orbiting around its star every four days. So if you lived on planet WASP-39b, you would have a birthday every four days. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Okay, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I hope I have blown your mind a little bit and given you a flavor of the alt text descriptions and the science uh, that's available on webtelescope.org. Tim, do you want to say anything? I, I, I will just say it's been an absolute joy coming here. 
It has been wonderful working on this material, and we'll, we will continue to work on it and make sure that this information is accessible to everybody um, because the universe belongs to everybody. <laughs> uh, Dr. Kelly and Tim, thank you both so much. Uh, wow. And <laughs> I'm just up here chuckling, folks. We just, my mind is still trying to, to grasp uh, everything that, that they just shared. And I've, I've heard much of, much of this presentation several times, and I still don't fully understand it. Like, I hear the words... I pick up pieces here and there, and it, it still just blows me away. But it, obviously you can tell the folks in the room and the folks in our broader membership are very appreciative of the accessibility of your work that you're doing uh, to make space for everyone and make space for people with disabilities as well. So it is uh, Dan Spoon. I don't know if you'd like to add anything here as we are now, I believe, at 1230.